Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Daniel Ellsberg to talk about perhaps the most dangerous moment, at least that we're aware of so far since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website, and we can't do this if you don't do that. Be back in just a few seconds. Many people have said that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is perhaps the most dangerous moment in terms of the possibility or threat of nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's mostly true, although there's been at least a few moments of miscalculation, misjudgments that could have ended everything but didn't because of some extraordinary efforts by some individuals who were manning radar stations and such. But certainly in terms of confrontation between the two big powers, uh, this is the most dangerous since 1962. And within the context of the most dangerous, the missile that hit Poland uh, in, on November 15th and killed, I believe it was, two farmers, uh, perhaps that was or could have been the most dangerous moment within the most dangerous context. Uh, if President Zelensky of Ukraine had been listened to and AP, Associated Press, which both came out within second, you know, minutes practically of blaming the Russians for this. And as it turned out, not too much longer. In fact, the Polish government, NATO and President Biden uh, reported or stated that, in fact, this was not a Russian missile. It came from Ukraine. And Biden actually distanced himself from Zelensky by saying he's saying that without evidence, which is creating a little more space between Biden and Zelensky than we've heard previously. But at any rate, there are some parallels with the Cuban Missile Crisis and what's taking place now. And I don't know anyone better to talk about that than Daniel Ellsberg, who lived and played a role in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Dan joins us now from Berkeley. Thanks for joining us, Dan. I agree with you, Paul, that there is a parallel between what's happening today and over the last seven months, as President Biden has indicated that there really is a parallel between the dangers of the Cuban Missile Crisis and today, perhaps nothing really like it in between. But those dangers we could learn from, from the Cuban Missile Crisis, have been different over time, year by year, decade by decade, because new information comes out. And um, they're really, I would say, the crisis is to this day not understood in crucial ways, 60 years later, and particularly in ways that indicate what the dangers really were and what dangers various leaders were prepared to accept, which is very important to try to understand what's going on now. Now, as you say, uh, just two days ago, we saw headlines that um, a red line had been crossed, basically, that there was an attack on Polish territory. And the headlines from AP said, by Russian missile, by a Russian missile. Well, actually, that was right. They didn't mention that both sides, Ukraine and Russia, are equipped with Russian missiles. Ukraine is still using mainly Soviet-supplied missiles. So where did this one come from? And initially, the assumption was that it was, as it said, from outside Ukraine, not right, and uh, that it was from Russia. Now, 
that brings in immediately then uh, Article 5 of NATO, uh, an attack on, on Poland from Russia would be an attack on all members of NATO, including the United States, uh, calling for all necessary means. And as a matter of fact, uh, President Zelensky invoked that and said there must be a retaliation now, and in fact called on NATO to be involved by this direct attack. Right away, actually, the Poles who had been hit cast doubt on that uh, question of whether it had come from Russia. Uh, let me give you a, a clue that I haven't seen in the paper. I noticed that a, uh, I think a Polish aircraft or a, a non-Ukrainian aircraft was flying high over uh, Ukra uh, Poland and Ukraine and saw the missile track down below it, uh, which would suggest, since they could tell where it came from probably pretty well, uh, that they probably knew right away that it had come from Ukraine. I mean, that's just a speculation on my part. But anyway, Poland has then right away been saying they called for an Article 4 conference, that is, uh, consultation among the main members of NATO as to what to do to this situation. And there was, in fact, emergency sessions of ministers, uh, including uh, President Biden. And as to what to do. So fairly quickly, they said, no, this is a Russian-made uh, anti-aircraft missile fired by the Ukrainians. And indeed, the blame is not on Ukraine. It's, uh, it's on Russia because they were firing lots of missiles at Ukraine. Ukraine was forced to fire anti-aircraft missiles at um, the Russian missiles. And so, you know, the, the Russians are to blame in this situation. And let me just say, by the way, that I, the way I see this, Russian aggression is occurring. And as far as I understand that, the Russians have no right to be firing any missiles at Ukraine. They have no right to be killing any Ukrainian military or civilian. And I'll even add one thing to that. As still not a complete pacifist, certainly I wasn't in the Marines or in the Defense Department, but... I would still say, in my opinion, the Ukrainians have a right to be shooting at Russians in their territory. I have friends who feel that a nonviolent uh, meeting challenge would be better. I, I actually can't agree with that. Uh, of course, if the world blows up, uh, we will regret that this was not uh, an easy takeover by Russia, as in the Crimea, which is what they expected. Yeah, Dan, of course. Dan, Dan, can I can I interrupt? I don't think we will be here to regret. <laughs> You're right, and no one will be blamed either. Uh, there will be no courts, no no problem. So that's a a wonderful thing. As Jay, John F. Kennedy used to say about the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in the context I'm talking about actually. He said, these military people uh, have an advantage. If we carried out their recommendations and they're wrong, there will be no one to blame. He won't, they won't be blamed. And really, that's the context we're talking about right now. Okay, so interestingly, in this fog of war situation, uh, Zelensky is currently, two days later, sticking by his original estimate, which calls for recommendations of war with NATO and um, Russia. Uh, he says, I, as he said yesterday, I have no doubt uh, that this did not come from Ukraine. 
because his military commanders have assured him that it did not. Well, let me jump right back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were the protector and manager of the foreign, of the whole Western Hemisphere. It was a sphere of ours, not just the Caribbean, not just Mexico. It was the whole Western Hemisphere. It was a sphere where we could exclude foreign bases or alliances and influences as much as we could. Had no legal, legal standing. It was just our policy. Well, of course, to leap ahead to the present time, that's the issue in uh, both Ukraine right now and Taiwan. Uh, Putin is claiming uh, at least eastern Ukraine, if not all of Ukraine, is part of Russia, let alone a sphere of influence. But all of Ukraine, he said for 20 years and more, and was recognized by everyone as in Russian tradition, uh, if we are a great power, we have a sphere of influence where we can keep others out, where it's our influence, not others. Where people around us, contiguous, do not have the full sovereign freedom to uh, ally themselves or to allow foreign weapons in next to our borders. We are a great power. We want to be a great power, says Putin, despite the end of the Cold War. Speaking for Russia now, not the USSR anymore. And uh, that means that we uh, can say we don't want foreigners on our bases, just on our borders, just the way you did in Cuba. Well, that was in our tradition in Cuba. It had no legal standard. NATO, of course, is insisting on the point, oh, no, there's no, uh, Ukraine is a sovereign nation. They can ally with us. They can even put bases in Ukraine if they want on their border. That's the nature of being a sovereign nation. In other words, they're saying you don't have a sphere of influence. U.S. does, others do. You don't, even in Ukraine. So that's actually the, the fundamental conflict that's going on right now. Now, there's also the point, what about national security? Uh, hardly anybody really questions that missile bases, which we have not proposed to put as of yet in Ukraine, or even a NATO base, hardly anybody questions that would endanger Russian national security. As Putin says, we have a national security problem here. Strictly speaking, it does not change the military situation he's in. Yes, he does have anti-ballistic missile bases in Poland and Ukrainian, which he complains about just as we would, because they can be converted into cruise missile uh, launching sites that would threaten Moscow. And we certainly wouldn't like that. And uh, he didn't like the Pershing II was in there. But strictly speaking, he hasn't claimed that he had a right to attack those in Poland and Romania. And legally, he doesn't. Uh, naturally, could that be a, a subject for negotiation? Sure. Do we have a right or a need to put those missiles there? No, uh, they shouldn't be there, as a matter of fact. By any standards, uh, it's reasonable to call them a major provocation uh, to the Russians. But in terms of missiles in uh, Ukraine, I would, I would say, and the Russian military would not agree with me on the whole, they don't change the situation from Poland to Romania or elsewhere. The truth is, it has been true from the mid-50s. 
that a major conventional war between the U.S. and Russia, which went nuclear, which would be very likely, and remember it's never happened, uh, which would be likely to go nuclear rather than either power being willing to lose to the other superpower without using all its weapons. And such a war would be total catastrophe for both sides, no matter who started it or how it started or what the circumstances or what the tactics were or whether there were a thousand more missiles on one side than there are now or the 6,000 that used to be warheads or 10,000 or 20,000, 100,000. It really doesn't make any difference. And that's especially true because of nuclear winter, which I won't go into. But even when we didn't understand that smoke in the stratosphere would kill all the harvests around the world, we didn't know that till 40 years ago. Um, even before that, we knew we we're talking about killing a third of the Earth's population, uh, then three billion in a war. So just as then, 40 missiles in Cuba could kill Americans, but they did not change the situation of total catastrophe if they were used, because they would be used in the con context of others, including our own, which would, you know, kill hundreds of millions. You, you've made this point before, both about Cuba, but I think it's worth making again about Ukraine, is that even even if yeah. the, 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 there were nuclear weapons in Ukraine, yeah. the fact that Russia has submarines that has second strike capability to the point where they can destroy most of the United States, that being a little closer to the border in Ukraine doesn't make much of a difference. And if they really want to put weapons somewhere, they can put them in Estonia already, which is closer to Moscow. But that wouldn't change anything either. Okay. Let me take this as a point of view which is not universally held, and especially by the military, and especially by the missile forces of the military, who want to believe that what they're doing is very essential, that more weapons are essential, better weapons are essential, and that when other side gets weapons we don't have, that's very serious, we've got to do something about it. I have little doubt that Putin hears from his military that military bases in Ukraine would somehow be very different from the bases in Poland and Romania that can hit Moscow just as quickly. Uh, but this would be an addition and it would be terrible. Just as in America, there's always been people to tell the president and others that slight changes in the Soviet or Russian posture are terribly serious and we've got to do something about them. Always involves, always involves spending more money and having more forces on our side. Uh, never. Oh, this change there really allows us. Uh, I'll take that back a little. Uh, when the, when the Russians enormously, uh, reduced, uh, their forces as we did, uh, during the, uh, after the Cold War, uh, we did lower, take the number of, of targets down somewhat. Did that result in a, in a real lessening of our forces? Reduction of forces? No. No, plans changed a little. And I'm saying that with 1,500 warheads now on alert on both sides, many of which are in submarines, which can't be counted, the reduction that has occurred of some more than 80% in the number of warheads in the last 20 years makes no difference. And another 
having of these courses would make no difference. That's the way it is. And the, the notion that is, that's different from that is a myth, which is a very profitable myth and very supportive of the Air Forces and the Navy on both sides. But uh, building the forces to make a difference won't make any difference, but it's very profitable. I've been saying that about Ukraine, and that's just my opinion. Uh, I, I'm just saying uh, I have enough background in this that m my opinion is now, of course, only mine. Uh, it shouldn't be swept off the table and ignored. Will there be people who say that's that's all wrong? Yes, there will. And you can count on that. And going back now, in, um, uh, but it is interesting to know who agreed with my opinion in 1962. Because when I came into the Pentagon right after the president's speech, I was asked and I gave my judgment of how much difference 38 or 40 missiles would make. And I won't go through the whole thing, but it was my judgment on October 23rd, 1962. Well, they're there, you know, yes, they can hit Moscow, they can hit Washington and SAT and so forth as can Russian submarines with no warning offshore right now. So it's not as though they're not threatening. All of these weapons are threatening on both sides. But does it change the situation? No, it doesn't. Now, that was my judgment. I didn't know then. Actually, I, I, I heard indications of it a little later. McNamara had made that same judgment to the president uh, a week earlier. Uh, as he said, these do not constitute a military problem. They do constitute a political problem, and that was very obvious. The It was disastrous, potentially, from the point of view of the 1962 election, and above all, the 1964 election. Had, in fact, uh, Kennedy done nothing, uh, he, he probably could not have run in 1964, and there would have been a wipeout of the kind that was expected this year uh, in in 62. Instead of which, uh, thanks to his generally regarded as courageous, bold, measured, prudent, wonderful, miraculous words of Arthur Schlesinger, matchless, matchless, bearing, there wasn't a wipeout. In fact, that was one of the last times that there has not been a midterm wipeout, and the, the Democrats gained senators in, uh, instead of losing them. So, but that's what he was facing. But also, Paul, as you've suggested, there were external aspects to this. Above all, that for the U.S. to back down in the face of Khrushchev's defiance of Kennedy's warnings not to do this, which were in fact being made in September, as the missiles were being installed, so uh, it was a little late uh, for those warnings. And uh, but in face of that, the humiliation of that of our credibility, our courage, uh, the mere fact that it was happening, all the more if we didn't do anything about it, did have the possibility of destroying our leadership in NATO. Whether it would have happened or not. George Ball, for example, number two man in state said, no, no, it won't, it won't have that effect. What happens in Cuba? It's a matter of judgment, but it could have happened. And what would that mean? 
Well, that would mean that the French and Germans would do the leadership instead of the U.S. And who knows, they might even make deals with the Russians, which is, you know, something we've uh, tried to prevent since the end of World War II. And um, so it would be, it would be serious, uh, potentially. That, that was a matter of judgment over which there were controversy. Here's the question. Does what happened in the last few days where the Poles, NATO, the Americans, instead of allowing what was essentially misinformation that these were Russian, a Russian missile, they could have let that be understood, even if they knew it was BS. That's true. And does it give you some hope that there's actually some rationality there, at least enough to step back from the possibility uh, of World War III here? Well, you don't have to have hope because, of course, uh, that's what's happened so far. The, the polls contradicting Zelensky and Biden contradicting Zelensky for the first time in public does show prudence, you know, rationality, reasonableness, realism, and has preserved us from being today at war with Russia as a member of NATO, having NATO as Russia. So, yes, and that kind of reasonableness was shown by the president especially, and in the end by Khrushchev, uh, but not by their subordinates. But I want to finally, to put this in context, as I mentioned, um, as I said, it's been totally understood that given the political, see, McNamara did not say there was no danger here. He said the danger is political. And he meant both domestic, as he said. And, you know, it would be bad if uh, the Democrats lost. That's bad for the world, right? Not only the Democrats, as, as Democrats, as partis, party, partisans always see that. Uh, it's, the world is at stake here if we lose office because we're not perfect, but we're better than the other guys. And if they get in, everybody's in danger. They all, everybody feels that in office and, and the Kennedy people too. But, um, the question was, there are dangers, both alliance, not, not from a Russian surprise attack. Nobody believed that. Only the American people were shuddering about that. Not knowing the Russians had only a, a dozen or so or a couple dozen ICBMs at that point that had not gotten through to the American public. So, and everybody in the government knew that. So they weren't expecting a surprise attack. But there were real stakes. The question was, were they worth, what risk were they worth? Were they worth going to war? Did they compel us to go to war? And the answer to that in almost every discussion for the last 60 years has been, in their eyes, right or wrong, these were smart guys, conscientious, patriotic, and that's all true. Um, they thought it was compulsive. It had to. Had no choice. And here's what Nitsa told me, and this is the top secret uh, that, that he's concealed for the rest of his life. Invasion looked bad. This is the night of the 15th, talking to Rusk. It would be a bloody mess. An airstrike looked better, but that too didn't look good, especially a surprise attack with the political repercussions of uh, Japanese Pearl Harbor. He thought we would just have to eat it. That's Nixon, that's Nitsa talk for accept it. 
I can say as a supporter of NHTSA, came up all the time. They'll have to eat it. We have to eat it. It means can't do anything about it. It's the fate of him. Got to accept it. He thought we would just have to eat it. Rusk felt about the same way. The Secretary of State. He wouldn't, NHTSA would not have necessarily have predicted this reaction, NHTSA told me. Both agreed it was a hideous prospect. In other words, he was saying, <laughs> it's terrible politically, it's terrible in NATO, but what can we do? We can't go to war over this, that's aggression. We can't, and it's risky, terribly risky. The risk of it is not worth it. The missiles are there. It's not a question of, shall we keep them from getting there? They are there, and they have a right to be there, and to attack them is dangerous, and there's no one disagreed with that, uh, except LeMay and, uh, and the Joint Chiefs, who felt that until they were operational, not to worry about it. And although the CIA said one might already be operational, which is almost surely not the case, uh, but they would be operational within days. So you had to do something uh, fast, the JCS thought, but once they were operational, no one in the process disagreed. You can't attack them. It's too dangerous. All right. Was that, that's Rusk and Nitsa, not two doves that we're talking about. McNamara, I learned from his, his assistant, known as the assistant to the Secretary of Defense. He always insisted on that. The, the um, Adam Yarmolinsky, when I talked to him about it, who I, I knew very well. And he said that when he discussed it with McNamara the next day, the 16th, uh, McNamara says, that sh this is another top secret. Sorry, but guys, but I, I didn't use to stamp my own uh, drafts, my own notes, top secret. Not, not many people did, actually. And I took them with me when I left Rand. McNamara's reaction then was, it was top secret at the time, and it hasn't been declassified. This shows how stupid it was to draw that line, which was when Matt Kennedy said on September 4th and again on the 13th, there are not offensive missiles there, and if they were, that would raise the gravest issues, meaning war. It's a vital interest. He said, I advised against saying that, said McNamara. McNamara thought, his assistant told me, who knew his thinking totally, there might not have had to be a crisis if Jay hadn't drawn the line. Yarmolinsky thinks it's unlikely that John F. Kennedy would have made the firm, precise commitment he did if he had thought there was much chance it might be called. He made it publicly only public only for political reasons, meaning the Republicans are saying invade, and he wanted to say, I don't want to invade now, because I don't have a reason. There's no offensive missiles there. If there were offensive missiles, if he had thought there would be offensive missiles, and Khrushchev had assured him that there wouldn't be, he wouldn't have said that. And that's what his speechwriter, and again, confidant, Ted Sorensen said later at conferences. He wouldn't have made those statements if he hadn't believed Khrushchev that there wouldn't be any missiles there. So he was excusing himself for not doing anything now that the Republicans wanted. Okay, so, uh, and moreover, if the commitment had not been made, the whole thing would not have been that crucial. It would not have had the ominous significance it did 
of calling us, of challenging us, of, you know, humiliating the president by putting presidential, quote, and U.S. prestige so clearly at stake. In short, he was in the process of humiliating John F. Kennedy very severely just before a midterm election. Now, what do you do when that happens? Nitsa and Rusk the night before saw all that, and they thought, sorry, we, what can you do about it? But they weren't thinking politically on that. And John F. Kennedy, when he learned about it on the 16th, said right away, first of all, he can't do this to me. He, he fucked me. He can't do this. Bobby's reaction, I learned from the guy who showed him the photographs, shit, 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 you know. Politic. He said the reaction was entirely political. And uh, Kennedy said to me, George Bundy, when he showed the photographs, this makes Senator Keating president in 1964. Keating was a well-respected Republican senator, much more respected than Goldwater, for example, um, who had said on October 10th that there were six missile bases uh, in Cuba. This is four days before the U-2 discovers them. So, so where, where, what lessons do you draw, in and how, and in terms of what U.S. policy should be in regards to Ukraine? I am sure that President Biden not only does not desire nuclear war, and let me say, I believe Putin does not desire a two-sided nuclear war. Not only they don't desire it, I'm sure they, I feel they are probably determined not to have a two-sided nuclear war. That does not rule out some limited nuclear attacks by Putin. And that does not if he feels that the alternative is humiliation. Because what the Berlin crisis of 61, the Cuban crisis of 62, and a number of others have shown, and I believe this one could be an example, the alternative of serious humiliation to the leader of a nuclear weapon state is seen as even worse than the dangers of an all-out nuclear war. So what you're saying here is that to avoid a humiliation, knowing the missiles in Cuba were not a real national security threat. Right, yes. Kennedy was willing to risk the possibility of this heading to nuclear war, and that it could be the same thing, that if Putin is willing, uh, I should, if so fears humiliation, this could also get out of control. This if Biden phones you tonight and yeah. says, what do you think I should do? Yeah. What do you say to him? I would say, there must not arise either, either direct fighting, direct uh, armed conflict between the U.S. and Russia, or Russia and any NATO country like Poland, such as was so rumored to have happened, believed to have happened two days ago. That can happen any time, and uh, by accident, as in this case, on either side. When that gets started, uh, values and priorities change very quickly by the leaders in power because that confronts the possibility that it will escalate and both sides believing in the myth 
that it is less bad, as Castro put it, to strike first than second. Castro was wrong then and it's wrong now, but both sides are entirely modeled on that, that belief. Each will believe this may blow up. Shall I wait or shall I go first now? But beside that case, um, something that isn't going to happen in the next week or so, but if Putin does uh, face what Zelensky cl uh, promises to give him, which is to drive every Russian out of not only the eastern Donbass, but out of Crimea, which almost every Russian regards as Russian. And Putin has defined the Donbass as Russian right now. If Zelensky were, uh, achieves, is coming close to achieving his aims of, uh, of depriving Russia of that part of its own territory, as the U.S. is so far supporting, that would be, Putin would be facing a humiliation of enormous, of enormous uh, strength. Incredibly more than the Bay of Pigs, let's say, or Vienna, or the other things that Kennedy feared could, if they added up, give him a coup. And yes, Putin could definitely be facing a coup, a coup, uh, as he said, in effect, uh, he, he's acting like other leaders. Russia is me. Russia, c'est moi. You can't take Russia or you're taking me. And there's political truth to that. And as he did say, otherwise, without Russia, what does the rest of the world matter? What I'm saying is that he could, uh, that if you face him with humiliation, which he deserves from his aggression, however provoked, it's aggression, he deserves humiliation, you can say condemnation, but he has a lot of nuclear weapons left to use. And I would say, don't confront him with that. Don't try to go beyond Kherson and achieve total expulsion of Crimea. This is me talking now. Um, and, uh, or, or the Eastern Donbass. It's too dangerous for the world and for Ukraine. Whatever, uh, Zelensky, however conscientiously and patriotically he thinks, uh, that that's, uh, that's called for. So I would say negotiations, which are being talked about, which others to say would be shameful and appeasement and, uh, you know, intolerable and all that. I would say get this, the, the incident just two days ago is a very good symbol. Get this shooting over as fast as you can. It won't happen quickly. There's no way to make it quickly. But to go on all winter pressing on this and into the spring pressing on this is most dangerous if it actually achieves what Zelensky claims to want to achieve and what the Ukrainians want. And so that's dangerous. Sorry. The whole world is at stake on that. And there are people on all sides, uh, like Castro in Cuba, um, Zelensky in Ukraine, the way he talks, the other Ukrainians, I don't doubt that there are people telling Putin and maybe Putin himself who feel this is an intolerable humiliation. And not that he will then press the button to hit Washington. That's not the issue. We've got to do something that will shock this other side into accepting our terms, which may or may not correspond to the terms I've just described here. Maybe they're more ambitious. Maybe they're in Russia's terms. Uh, I doubt very much if he still wants to do 
what he expected to do at the beginning, take Kiev. No, I don't. Uh, is he going to move to that? No, I don't think so. But uh, at what and, point? And, and one never knows yeah. in the context of such tension, the next time a missile goes astray and gets completely misinterpreted. And wait, look, that happened on the Ukrainian side. Of course that could happen on the Russian side uh, any time. Uh, they are sending missiles. Uh, why shouldn't one of their missiles go astray into Poland? Uh, is it impossible that somebody would actually deliberately do that under Putin? Is it impossible that Putin would do it? And what I'm saying, no, it is not impossible. And that is not because Putin is crazier than Kennedy or Khrushchev or McNamara or any of our past leaders. It's because I think he's not less crazy. Well, let me, let me, let me end on a slightly, at a little positive note, which is at least it's something that the head of Russian intelligence and the head of the CIA just met a few days ago in Turkey and discussed how to reduce the risk of nuclear war. Uh, she, uh, President Xi of China, uh, made it clear that he does not want the Russians to even keep threatening uh, nuclear war. And in fact, Lavrov and some other officials have said, well, we're not threatening that. So maybe there is some real attempt to reduce at least the nuclear tension. So, so there's a little bit of positive light here. I have no doubt there are attempts right now. I am certain that neither side wants a nuclear war. And what I learned from Cuba is that determination is far from guaranteeing that there will not be a nuclear war. They do not have as much control as, as they think. Thanks very much for joining me, Dan. Thank you, Paul, for having me. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button. Subscribe to the email list. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. If you're on all the various podcast platforms, come on over to the website. Uh, and thanks again for joining us on the analysis.news.